Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Missio Alliance and Kairos Partnerships. Good morning, Doug. Good morning, JR. It's great to be back here on another episode. We had a great first episode with Tom Smith. Yes. And we're excited to have him back for a second conversation. Yeah. And I feel like if you have not listened to the first conversation, hit pause now. And we'll be back here. You know, it's it, you, you can then start over, but go back and listen to that first conversation. It was just packed full with really good stuff. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Tom gives me so much to think about. And uh, originally it was just going to be one. And we thought we've got to make this two <laughs> conversations uh, so good. So in the question that you and I were talking about earlier, Doug, is who are some of the influencers in our lives? Who has shaped us the most when we think about our pastoral vocation, our, our calling? So who are some of the big influencers in in your journey? Yeah, uh, I think of a, a gentleman by the name of Branson Roberts. And um, I was a young pastor, uh, I, I 20 years old, without any kind of Bible education, but I found myself on staff at a very large church. It was kind of a, it was a God thing. That's how I got there. And Branson was a person who had 30 years of ministry under his belt. And he came a few months after I was hired and he took me under his wing. And I remember we were reading books together, like, uh, deep church and all these like, you know, Henry Nowen books and all kinds of different things we were reading together, but he just invested time and energy. He took me on my first hospital visit. And I remember um, him just like on the way back he, and he doesn't have, a, he's not a man of a lot of words. And so he would just ask me some questions and listen. And then he would just have these like amazing, just moments of incredible wisdom. And I would say 80%, 90% of how I do ministry today is because of Branson's investment. Wow. Wow. That's fascinating. How about some of the the authors or oh, some man. of the thinkers that have shaped and influenced you. Yeah. I, I mean, Dr. Seuss, if I'm going to start that far back, <laughs> um, no, but I mean, honestly, I, I would say the one, the person who has in, influenced me the most in terms of people that I feel like have just spoken into my life is a guy like, is Eugene Peterson. Um, he has just, he said, he has said things that I feel like every time I read one of his books and I've read them all and I'm reading them again, there's just this moment of like, yeah, that's right. Um, I think Henry Nowen is another one, but yeah. How about you, JR? Yeah. Nowen would be up there. Uh, Dallas Willard, mm. uh, certainly. Uh, in fact, you know, I, I'm not a big possessions guy. I mean, gift is my, is number five on my love languages. But if the house were on fire, I think I'd run back in. When I uh, was ordained after my ordination, Dallas Willard sent me a signed copy uh, with, you know, congratulations on your ordination of the divine conspiracy. Um, and so that's a copy that I think I'd like run out of here with <laughs> if the house was on fire. Um, besides my family, of course, of course, and birth certificates and all that stuff. But that that's one that, that really is, uh, I cherish a great deal. N.T. Wright is another voice that's, that's, uh, that's been huge in, in my, in my ear. C.S. Lewis. Um, but a, the big one of course is Eugene, um, both his writings and also in person. And so as, because of that, um, our next week, we actually are really excited about this. So Eugene Peterson died a year ago, uh, tomorrow, October 22nd. And, um, so what we're going to do it, next week in our episode on the one year anniversary since his death, 
um, this week that we're going to read some of the letters that he wrote me and what I learned. And, and we're going to share some of our favorite quotes and favorite books. And so we're going to kind of dedicate that to, uh, that, that time to you and I having a conversation about Eugene and to what he's meant, not just to us, but to many, many, many people, uh, around the country, around the world and his influence. So something to look forward to in the future. I know I'm really excited about that too. Cause yeah. yeah, he has the, the way that he has shaped so many people. Even I was, I can't remember the name of the book. I was reading a book recently and the, the intro, the guy was talking about conversations that he had with Eugene. And I feel like what, what I'm hearing or what I noticed in that is Eugene invested his life in so many people. And the fruit of that is starting to come out in these beautiful ways. And that is why I have so much hope for pastoral ministry moving into this un, uncharted territory of the future mm. because he poured his life into us. And like, and I, I mean, I've been privileged to read some of those letters that, that Eugene has written you. And I'm, I cannot wait to share those. I feel like we're going to be sitting here. We should have like, be wearing like smoking jackets and pipes and just kind of hanging out and <laughs> listening with tears in our eyes and laughter on our tongues. So, yeah. Yeah. So look forward to that uh, next week, but we still have a great part two here uh, with with uh, Tom Smith. So, hope you enjoy this this uh, conversation part two with Tom Smith. So, you wrote a book called Raw Spirituality: Rhythms of the Jesus Life. Uh, it was a Renovare resource, if I remember right, um, with University Press. And um, yeah, I know Renovari. We've we've had uh, some Renovari folks on uh, before, and we've talked about the Apprentice Institute. And I know you've spoken at that. And and James Brian Smith actually did the afterword, I think, to raw spirituality. So, um, it, what was behind that book? Tell tell us a little bit about that book. Is it unpacking a lot of the things that we're talking about here? What are some things that uh, spawned the book to say I'm going to invest a year of my life to writing this? Yeah, the, the, I mean, the book's genesis um, is the story of my own, uh, you know, op opening up or, or realizing that the life of discipleship is a life that is embodied and uh, is a lifelong journey of living in the rhythms of grace. Uh, the book uh, um, got its start actually in Brazil. Um, I was teaching some pastors. Um, in Brazil through Renovare. I've got a very good friend there who's leading up Renovare Brazil. And Jim Smith was actually there in the workshop. And he said, listen, dude, you need to write this stuff down. Mm. So I wrote the first chapter to him and he said, listen, I, let me take this to Intervarsity Press. And yeah, then the, the writing and the rewriting and the rewriting and the rewriting started. <laughs> um, but it, uh, you know, it uh, the the book itself um, is a is not just a theoretical book. It's a narrative of our group of South Africans um, living through our own journeys of some of the things we've already talked about. You know, um, what happened with with us with the rhythms is, you know, we we struck a chord. You mentioned the Constantinian era. You know, when uh, just before the almost in the second and, and third centuries, membership in the, in the church was quite a hectic thing. You know, becoming a member took two to three years of instilling very specific 
reflexes, as Alan Crader, who's a great author, who sadly passed away, talked about the catechism of this early churches. So our community, you know, uh, adopted the, the, some of these rhythms and, and started to think through contextually what would it mean to follow the Jesus life. And, uh, and the rhythms are ways in which we train in very specific exercises to, you know, become people that are yoked to Christ. Um, so the book gives seven of these rhythms. Um, and then in the second last chapter, we talk about what happened when we took those rhythms as white, uh, rich Christians into our multicultural black setting and how they started to critique our monoculture spirituality. Mm. So anyway, so it's a, it's a book that tells that. Um, it was really fun writing it. Um, and, and and it's a book that has, I think, uh, sparked some conversation here in South Africa. I don't know how many Americans actually read it because, you know, you have to get through, you know, the fact that this book is written from a South African perspective. So, mm. yeah. Mm. Well, m- more Christians should read it because it's great. And and in the beginning of the book, and we've laughed about this story a lot. I've told this story a lot. Doug and I were laughing about the story before we started this conversation with you. Uh, tell us a story about the waiter at the beginning, because it really is talking about this embodiment, yeah. right? An embodied spirituality. So, but but yeah, go ahead and take it away. Uh, so the, I mean the the opening story uh, is a it is a, a a happening that took place in a coffee shop here in South Africa. I I love working in public spaces because. You know, uh, I think we get, can get cloistered very easily as, as pastors and leaders. In fact, uh, JR, I won't mention the, the church's name, but um, I once, while I was there in the States, I, for one week, I counted how many people from outside of the staff came into the church building for a week. And uh, surprisingly, it wasn't a lot. So, <laughs> Um, so being in the community, I think is a, a quite an important rhythm for, for Christians. So I was sitting in, in a coffee shop and this waiter came up to me, very extravagant guy. And he's like, praise the Lord. There's two of us now that are born again, Christians. And I'm like, yes, like, dude, there's like 50 people here. How do you know? <laughs> yeah. First of all, how do you know it's, I'm a Christian. And he's like, well, nobody would have like so many scripture verses because I was busy working on a sermon on his PowerPoint. So he's like, I, I guess you're a Christian. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, no, I am. So he's like, so what do you do? I'm like, no, I'm a pastor. So he starts telling me that um, he had this beautiful awakening in, in his faith journey. And he shares it. And then he says to me, um, I just have one problem. And I'm like, yeah, what, what's the problem? He's like, yeah, I, I, I love Jesus now and it's wonderful, but I really love sex. And he puts down my drinks and he goes to go and serve someone else. You know, now I'm in suspension. Now I'm waiting. <laughs> he comes back. He's like, yeah, so my faith journey started. I go to church in the mornings and then every Sunday evening I have sex with a different lady. He's like, I have a problem. He's like, these things are not compatible. And he walks away again, you know, and he's having this really open conversation in this public space. 
And he comes back and he unloads on me a phrase, which I think is a Romans 6, 13, verse 13 paraphrase. He says to me, Pastor, the problem with me is that I've accepted Jesus into my heart, but not into my penis. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I, I, you know, obviously this is beautiful phrasing, uh, you know, and uh, exact diagnostic of what it means, what Paul says there in Romans 6 is, you know, how do we offer our bodies as instruments of righteousness? Mm. That means everything. And so uh, I start the book with that story because, you know, I, I grew up in a country and a continent where if you take the Rwandan story, you know, massive amount of people accepted Jesus there and then killed each other. You know, I lived in a country where my own faith journey was quite unsettled as a youngster when a black lady walked into our church service when I was 16 years old and the elders asked her to leave. Mm. And when I went and to see the pastor afterwards, you know, he said, well, you know, Paul was called for the, for the Gentiles and Peter for the Jews and we are for white people, you know. Mm. And that, you know, those splits, you know, of accepting Jesus into our hearts, but not having him in our fingertips or in our toes or in our hands. I think that's the process of formation of what it means to be disciples of Jesus. Mm. So the mm. book narrates, I think, a bit of that. And, and that story um, sort of sets the tone that if we can't talk about uh, penises and vaginas and money, you know, uh, we will really battle with real life discipleship. Mm. Um, you know, in the money, money chapter, I tell the story that, you know, a, a lot of Christians in the South African context, but I think it's in America, like it also, you know, would be very open to share their faith journey, but not their budgets. Um, but we, we, we follow a, a savior that said, you know, where your, where your treasure is, there your art will be. And our budgets, the way we spend our money, our sexuality, our friendships, our work, all of that gets tied into a specific way of life. And, and I think rhythms are ways or practices um, are ways, ancient ways in which we can train to become more like, you know, God. So my working title for the book, by the way, that I gave IVP was Training Naked with the Friends of Jesus. And my <laughs> editor said, this title, though provocative, will end, the, end up getting the book in, this, in the sex part of the book. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, so anyway. <laughs> so, and we were joking, the three of us, before we started recording, that you, you said you've had a lot of pastors thank you for that story because they can say the word penis from the pulpit. Um, and you said that's that's a problem. Talk about that problem. I know we're sort of laughing, but this is a very serious point you made. I want to make sure you share that here. Yeah, I, well, I think, the, I mean, yeah, it, it is a fact that most pastors use it as their gap to actually use the P word. Um, I think we've dom domesticated Christianity and the life of Christ to such an extent that there are some taboo subjects that people don't talk about. Um, and, the, you know, the, the, the battle with that is, uh, again, that we create these dichotomies of, 
of people that are souls um, in the sense that it's inside, not the Dallas Willard sense, that encapsulates everything. You know, people start to reduce Christianity to such an extent that we don't talk about all of the stuff that's involved. Um, and in that sense, a lot of our churches are actually platonic. We, you know, we, we are living in, into the gospel of Plato, where we have forms of things and not realities. And that's a big, big problem. Because then we reduce and shrink Christianity to, you know, uh, uh, mental exercise um, and not even a well thought out mental exercise, just like little aspects of our lives. So, mm. yeah. Mm. You left Claypot and you were doing other things and rhythms, rhythms of life, uh, rhythms of life, and, and talk about the organization, even your PhD, because. Sort of Claypot was that original vision of moving back, but the Lord's called you into some other things since you've been back in South Africa. Yeah, so, so what happened is um, uh, in, in Claypot's sixth year, we started to experiment with what it would look like to have a community that doesn't have a Sunday service. Um, we work with the premise that it's a bit counterproductive to tell people on a Sunday that church is not about a Sunday. Um, and so what, what, what I did in that stage was to give up my salary and we tried to organize Claypot um, without a paid pastor and without Sunday services. Now I can tell you now a decade later that the experiment failed. Um, <laughs> But it, but it was it was good for us to put our quote unquote money where our mouths are to to really see what an ecclesiology would look like uh, that that starts to talk about things like unpaid pastors and things like that. But in what happened in that uh, stretch is we started a movement that was citywide in, with uh, the the rhythm that we created in Claypot, and it was. Uh, the rhythm was gifted to an organization called Oasis that works in 10 countries worldwide. Uh, and and in, in that uh, space, Claypot started to engage multiculturally, uh, informally in the NGO sector. And what happened then was a, a bunch of people started to ask us uh, as Claypot to talk about the integration between social justice and spiritual formation. Um, one of our elders, uh, Audrey Marie of Claypot moved into one of the poorest neighborhoods uh, in Johannesburg um, where Oasis work was located. And so people would either, either phone her up and say, it's like, come and speak to us about the issues of social justice, or people would phone me up and say, come and talk about discipleship. And so uh, out of that rhythm of life was born, basically. Um, and so we, we've started, a, 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 it's basically a, a consulting company that, that works with communities and churches to develop rhythms that synchronize the inward and outward journeys of formation. Um, because what, what a lot of times happen is that the social justice people burn out um, and become cynical and, and really bitter. And the spiritual formation people, you know, can become so cozy with their contemplative stuff that they are at retreat centers the whole month. 
So the question we started to ask was, what would it look like to really create what we would now call a missional discipleship, um, where we sync these two journeys? So we we work with churches um, in South Africa mainly, through Oasis's work uh, in other countries. The rhythm has been used in other countries as well, and a bit in Brazil. But it's it's mainly working in in church communities in South Africa, and the idea is to help people to synchronize these two journeys. How do you, as you're talking with others, how do you make sure that you're living that out healthily so you're not a hypocrite, if I can say that. And then second of all, what are ways you and Lolly are cultivating that in terms of healthy rhythm? Yeah, so um, uh, for me, you know, if, if we talk about anything like rhythm, then you have to talk about the friends that you are inviting into that. So I've got, uh, you know, very uh, open and honest friendships that uh, are accountable in terms of my own rhythm. So we've got weekly meetings where we talk about what's going on in our lives. Um, we have formal ways of, uh, you know, still submitting what we are doing in the different areas of our lives. Um, so, you know, that has grown into, I think, friendships of encouragement, uh, a bit of the, you know, uh, the, the, you know, the idea that we can't do these things alone. And obviously for me and Lolly, that's the same. I think our main uh, uh, mission in life is obviously to follow Christ together too. Um, and so our family has very specific rhythms. Uh, you know, we've got a Sabbath together as a family. Um, on a weekly basis, uh, we use the Ignatian. We've sort of uh, adapted the Ignatian examen where we just get together as a family at least three or four times a week to just talk about what, what has been the best things in our day and what has been some of the worst things. Uh, we're all actively involved uh, in our local congregation, um, which I think teaches our children as well that you know, we live as disciples here in our neighborhood. A fun thing is that uh, in 2016, uh, I felt a call to go back to the church that expelled me as a 19-year-old. So I've been, <laughs> it's been a full circle where, where I'm back in the church in my neighborhood, which Eugene Peterson taught me. He's like, you choose the church that's the walking distance from your house. Um, you know, I, so I think for, for us, you know, it's, it's modeling it as a family, but within friendships and a faith community so that we, we don't drift. So, mm. yeah. I really appreciate those practices of, you know, an adapted family prayer of examine. Um, are there any other Sabbath practices or things that you do particularly on your Sabbath that has been just really life, life giving and life sustaining over the years? Yeah, so um, JR mentioned the word braai. So in South Africa, we don't barbecue, we braai. So we don't use gas, but we, uh, we, we barbecue uh, together as a family um, every Sabbath that we have. And, you know, that involves 
packing a fire, sitting next to the fire, talking to each other, eating good food. Um, then a part of our Sabbath practice is watching a movie. And uh, our rhythm is that Lolly and I can choose a movie. And then the kids can choose a movie after that. So it, it becomes a great place for us to also just talk about narrative and the influence of that. One of my favorite stories in the last few years with that was uh, in one of our sessions, we gave the kids uh, the 1987 version of the Karate Kid. <laughs> and, uh, and it was so fun to see how embodied uh, Liam, my son, gets involved in this movie. When, uh, you know, when Mr. Miyagi is, uh, is getting Daniel's son to paint and to wax, my son just got so frustrated. He's like, what the heck does this have to do with karate? <laughs> and uh, so, so the lesson of indirection, discipline. And then at the end of the movie, when Daniel's son does that magnificent crane kick, um, my son ran down the hallway into our bedroom and did the crane kick in front of the mirror and just kicked our mirror <laughs> totally to waste. <laughs> so it, uh, it, became a, it became a very uh, expensive movie night. <laughs> but but part, of, part of why we do this is that our kids are um, even more than, than I grew up. They are drinking narrative as milk every day. And so our Friday nights, you know, offer us the opportunity to teach them how to locate the narrative of Christ within larger culture. Um, yeah, so, you know, we, that's a weekly thing we as a family do together. We've got a weekly family meeting as well, where we talk about the rhythms that will happen in the week coming. Uh, we, you know, we do some very practical things. We'll choose family, uh, a family exercise every now and then. So for a while we drove on public transport as a family to see what that looks like. Mm. Um, you know, the kids would think through some exercises themselves. So we, we're trying to slowly but surely model that. It doesn't always work. Sometimes it's like pulling teeth, <laughs> but, uh, but we're, we're training. Um, my son has this beautiful, a uh, few years ago, he was, we were at the ocean and he was uh, trying to skip rocks on the, on the water. And at one point he succeeded and he, the, the rock bounced like seven times, but I didn't see it. So I was so excited. And he said to me, um, dad, look, 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 I'm going to show you again. And he wound up with one of those flat rocks and the rock just went doof. Didn't bounce once. Mm. Yeah, and I was so embarrassed for him. But he looked up at me and he said, that's okay, Dad. I'm still learning. Mm. And I think discipleship is uh, like learning to skip rocks and realizing that we're going to sometimes skip it seven times. But a lot of times we will have to forgive ourselves 70 times seven. That this, this rock, you know, a lot of times just sink. Mm. But we're working at it now. So as a family, I think that's where we find ourselves. So. I know you, as far as like learning and being out in nature with Liam, you love the outdoors. And, you know, you and I had a very significant conversation, rock climbing in Garden of the Gods 
uh, park in Colorado Springs where you said, I'm going to drop two bombs on you, JR. One, Lolly and I are moving back to South Africa to start a church. And two, uh, we'd like you and Megan to perfectly consider replacing us on staff at the church. And so that started my ministry, uh, vocational full-time ministry life. But you use, or you, at least you have in the past, I don't know if you still do this, where you use outdoor experiences in South Africa to help people explore discipleship so it is embodied with others, uh, with Christ and with others. So could you share a little bit about some of those outdoor adventures and your vision behind that and experience of seeing people tip into Jesus even more on the trail? Yeah, I still do that. Um, this year I took my, uh, you know, the, the church's confirmation class on a hike that uh, that almost killed all of us. Wow. Um, I think a, a part of why uh, I, I like taking people into creation is that, uh, you know, Charles Taylor, the, the great philosopher, talks about the buffer itself and, and says, you know, that we live in a culture where, where we have, you know, buffered ourselves from the divine in such a huge extent. And I find that creation creates that aureus self. It, it opens up. Um, it breaks through barriers. So I love taking people into caves and backpacking environments, wildernesses where there's no cell phone reception. Um, and, and my experience with that is once, once we've, we've entered a wild space like that, um, conversations start to drift in different directions, um, and 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 you know it it becomes uh, places where we can have different kinds of conversations. So in in rhythm of life, we have this uh, very small maxim that just says that the toxic theology you uh, created in your air conditioned building won't be deconstructed in that same building with that same air condition mm. and so uh, we've got a beautiful afrikaans phrase that says skaith yo life which means move your body and i think you know we we're following this messiah that's on the way he said i am the way and and i you know so there's there's something about the embodiment of place and space and environment that is crucial for spiritual leaders mm. Um, to know how to to just get people out of their comfort, and so that's part of what we do um, is is to take people back into these wild spaces so that they can um, experience you know God in a different way. Mm. Um, yeah, and what I mean, it, uh, I can talk hours about this. Let me just mention one. You know, if you, if you think of some of the great passages in, in the New Testament about discipleship, then you will hit on to, say, Ephesians 4. It says, you know, let him who, who steals stop stealing and learn how to do good. If you take, you know, a, a bunch of people into a hike with rationed food supplies, then on day two, people become thieves. Um, <laughs> they steal each other's food, you know, jokingly. But it's, it's very interesting how character manifests when we are not in manageable spaces. And so, you know, it, it, it becomes places of grace and, and, and gymnasiums where we can train ourselves towards godliness. Um, yeah, so anyway, when we lived in Colorado, you know, my, uh, when I did pastoral conversations, I usually told people, bring your 
bring your hiking shoes. We're not going to sit in an office, you know, weather permitting, we'll walk in Ute Park or, you know, be outside because, you know, the, the Gospels are filled with these little notes and then they went to Caesarea Philippi. You know, that's a 16K hike, you know, or so, you know, the, the, I think the way Jesus discipled was on the way and using, you know, the environment was a huge part of his pedagogy. So, yeah, mm. I love doing that still. Mm. Mm. I miss Colorado's mountains. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's something really important about being experiencing Christ outside there just seems to be such a deep connection. I know for myself too, um, just finding those places. How would you want to encourage pastors who maybe have not ever experienced that? Hmm. Yeah, I think to start with baby steps, I think uh, if you've never done that, you know, before you go and do the Appalachian Trail, <laughs> maybe you know, seek, seek out your local park. And, and maybe start a rhythm of having your lunch in the park. You know, that might be a good experience. And then as a next step, you know, maybe invite someone that you disciple into the park with you. Um, I think uh, if, if, you, if, you, if you start to take people into the wilderness, especially in an in a American context, there's a bunch of organizations that, that does training. Um, uh, wilderness Outdoor, I can't remember the acronym, but Lolly and I did a few courses with them when we were in the States. So I think there's a, there's a bunch of, um, you know, ministries that does great work to actually train people. Because, you, you know, when you're taking people into the wilderness, you, you're, you're doing, taking, you know, responsibility as well. Um, I, I, I guess uh, uh, one of the things would be to go on one of these trips. Um, and maybe you know you guys can can help your listeners to think through what are some of the avenues that they can follow in terms of that. Um, uh, you know, there's obviously in terms of of of, of space. Uh, let me give you another example. Um, sometimes when I work with churches, I I ask them to meet me at the local McDonald's, and then they are always freaked out. Um, because you know McDonald's takeaways place, and then they get there, and I say, okay, let's get coffee, and then I tell them, okay, what we're gonna do now is we're gonna take a taxi and go to downtown Johannesburg, and today we will do the session downtown, uh, which in South Africa is a very dangerous place. So people would be like, why the heck would we do that? And then I'd say, well. You know, maybe it would change the way we read the text because we're in a different context. Hmm. Um, one, one day we were doing this and the one lady said, God is not downtown. Like, can't we just go to a botanical garden? So there's, so there's obviously the, the converse of the wilderness experience is that sometimes we can again think God is in all those nice places. Um, my friend Trevor Hudson, who's a fantastic uh, Methodist friend of mine, uh, he has this very simple rhythm uh, when he gets invited to speak at a church. Um, he usually go early and then he asks the local pastor, take me to the place in your city that is the most desolate. And he says, quite often, pastors don't have a clue. They don't know where that is. They, they haven't mm. heard the cry. 
so the, so the wilderness you know plays out in in a bunch of ways it can be a park you know it can be downtown um, so, but i think discipleship you know has a lot to do with our with our habitat mm. the places we're in mm. that's great well, Tom, you and Lolly through the decades, um, which is weird, not years, but decades have been such a gift uh, to, to me and to many. And I, I just love that you take Jesus seriously and you don't take yourself too seriously, though, and which is a hard thing to do because we all know people who take Jesus seriously and ourselves too seriously. But you don't take yourself too seriously, but you do take Jesus seriously and that you're both pastoral and prophetic, just like Eugene. Um, that's how I would describe both of you in that. And your South African perspective is so important, especially for those of us in ministry and leadership, even, even here in the U.S., to remind us embarrassingly, but to remind us appropriately that the U.S. is not the center of the world. It is not the center of Christianity. And uh, so I have you've always given me such a global and very personal picture of Jesus every time we talk. And so I wish I could just reach through the screen here and give you and Lolly and the kids a big hug. But Doug and I are so grateful for your willingness to come on here and have this conversation. So thank you, my friend. Well, and blessings to you guys. I, you know, we, uh, as uh, South Africans, we, we think of you a lot, um, especially me and Lolly, like we have huge affinity. We remember that we are pilgrims and aliens. So mm. As, as followers of Christ, we're citizens of a different domain. Mm. But we've grown fond of America and keep on praying for your also lives as followers of Christ there. Mm. Um, and I'm excited to see, how, you know, God is also inviting people into his kingdom there. So it's a mm. great privilege to, mm. to know that we have an international uh, training group of friends. Mm. Yeah. It's great to be friends and family yes. members together. So Doug and I are incredibly grateful. Yeah, thank Thanks. You. So, JR, uh, thinking back over the last two episodes, but the full conversation with Tom Smith, uh, I just feel like there's so much that we could talk about and unpack, but what are some of the things that that are really sticking out to you? Yeah, well, if it, first of all, if you haven't heard part one, if you missed last week, it probably would be best for you to like, you know, you're hearing it a little bit out of out of sync, but if you missed missed it, make sure you go back and listen yes. to it as well, because it'll make a lot more sense in part one and part two. But uh, a few things stuck out to me. I mean, obviously, um, his relationship with Eugene, mm. uh, I, I reached out to Eugene as well, but there were times where I would just say, ah, Tom, I don't know if I should call Eugene. Should I reach out and ask this? And he'd say, do it. Um, even, you know, Hey, what do you think about this? Yeah. Yeah. Go ask him. And I'm so grateful. He helped me draw on my courage because mm. Eugene obviously has been a huge influence, uh, on my life. And, and some of that is because of Tom's encouragement. So uh, the two things he mentioned, I mean, the breaking the clay pot, uh, <sighs> exercise, uh, with membership and then having no members like that, that was a beautiful, uh, what a visual image, right? What a metaphor for what church is. And then when he talked about skipping rocks with his son, Liam, mm. and then saying, that's okay, dad, I'm still learning. And so this idea of skipping rocks with Jesus. And so maybe we can just encourage pastors for a moment 
that are just feeling like, man, I'm not doing this right. Why can't I get this? Why? I just feel like I'm stumbling all over the place or I'm, um, whatever it may be to just feel like, Hey, we're still learning how to skip rocks with Jesus. And I just found myself just like, <sighs> just hearing Tom say that. I felt that too. Uh, yeah, it was. Yes, absolutely. So yeah, let's talk about uh, a couple of questions and then we can talk about resources. But Tom even gave us a few practices as well. And mm. so maybe the the practices are also questions. He mm. talked about, you know, you asked a great question of Tom about, uh, especially with the outdoors, how do we start to get out of our own air conditioning kind of hmm. kind of idea? And he said, find a park. You don't have to, you know, hike the Grand Canyon, but yeah. find a park, have lunch in the park by yourself, and then maybe with others. And so I guess the question would be, who could, when, when in the next seven days could you go eat at a park? Hmm. And when uh, could you begin to invite others uh, to join you at the park? Um, I think it'd be, that's a question that pops up right away as well as Sabbath. I mean, some of the Sabbath practices that he mentioned of Ignatian prayer. Um, and if you aren't familiar with Ignatian prayer, um, just do a quick Google search on that. You'll find tons of things on Ignatian prayer and, uh, and how he did that. And maybe just the challenge to say in the next three days with that, see if you can do the Ignatian prayer with some of your family members or a friend or two. That's really good. And and we'll go ahead and throw up a, um, we'll put sort of a, a beginner's crash course guide to Great. Ignatian prayer, just so folks can, we won't can understand. We vomit, but we'll throw up right. on the we'll put show up. notes. Uh, we, we'll will, put we will put up. Yes. Yeah. We will put up on the show notes. Good call. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think another question that was really helpful, and and maybe this is actually important for, maybe even more important for pastors, is what if we got out of the mindset of asking what is the church and beginning to ask the question of who is Jesus? Mm. Um, I think, yeah, for myself, I think as a pastor, sometimes I struggle so much with that, with the question of like, well, what are we supposed to do? Who who are we? What does this mean? And sometimes maybe it's good for us to just take a step back and say, who is Jesus? Like, wh- how am I seeing him? play out right now. Mm, mm, that's good. That's good. Literally, and I'm not making this up, my phone buzzed while you were just answering that, mm. and it was from Tom. Mm. <laughs> and this is the text from Tom. I'll just read it right now. He said, you should bring a group of pastors for a Kairos MMP South African journey that includes a braai and a wilderness trip. I'm in. <laughs> I yes. wonder if any of our listeners, like yeah. literally that's the text I got one minute ago on my phone. Oh, I'm wondering if we took a Kairos Monday morning pastor podcast group to South Africa to hang out with Tom where he can take us on a trip, hopefully where we won't die. <laughs> Uh, but, but, and then to enjoy a bri, a barbecue together. Wouldn't that be awesome? Uh, yeah. So let us know, talk if, about a practice, a practical next step and resource. Yeah. How about we just go to Tom? So if that interests you, yeah. I'm not making this up. I'm showing Doug right now the text <laughs> it's from real. Tom Smith. It's real. <laughs> he just texted me one minute ago. So, um, that's uh, seriously, if yeah. you want to think about that. Uh, contact us and yeah. let us know. So maybe two challenges. Challenge one is if that's something you're interested in, great. Challenge two, if you're listening to this and say, I'm not interested in that, but I would love to pay for a pastor to do that. Wow. That's, I mean, love that's it. a huge thing, but we would love to yep. be able to provide Because most pastors are going to say, that sounds great. I yeah. can never afford that. <laughs> yeah. And so if you're listening and saying, you know what, I'm not going to go, but I can afford to pay for someone to go. Um, let us know. Mm. That's a great challenge, Doug. Yeah. I'm so glad you threw that out there. And on my on my desk here in front of me that we're recording on, I have two little skinny statuettes of some African villagers uh, from South Africa that Tom and Lolly Smith gave to us when we were there 15 years ago. It's not in my office. I know we have a stuff pastor or stuff in JR's office uh, 
portion of the podcast sometimes. This is not in my office, but this is downstairs in a place that I frequent regularly. So um, I'm so glad I brought them up to look at them. They have some dust on them, but they they are looked at regularly up mm. on the shelf. So, mm. but they remind me and and Megan of the great people that Tom and Lolly are mm. and our trip to South Africa mm. a few years ago. But mm. he he mentioned uh, one resource and then also his own book that I yes. want to make sure that we talk about. He mentioned the David Bosch. A book, Good News for the Poor and the Rich. What a title. That's, That's an amazing title. Needed. It's a needed title. On the book of uh, Luke, I think you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So David Bosch, we'll put that in the show notes. And then also his book, again, Raw Spirituality uh, with InterVarsity Press that he wrote uh, a few years ago. Yeah, the warning, so. the word penis is in it. So just so. Yeah. How about that penis yeah. story? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I just I love, love that it. on our show, on yeah. the notes that we have, it just says penis, question mark. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but, but so important, as funny as it is, it, it's like, it's one of those, when you hear the story, like, ha, oh, oh, wow. Wow. Yes. We question. better mm. get this idea of Jesus through our bloodstream, mm-hmm. not just through our head or our mouth. Mm-hmm. And, and I just so appreciate that. He wants to embody embodied practices that will train us as apprentices of Jesus. That's mm-hmm. who Tom is. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad this came out. So mm-hmm. what a fun episode, two episodes that Super this good. was, part one and two, uh, to talk uh, about uh, talk with our friend Tom. So send us out, Doug. Just yeah. leave us with an encouragement or a sending out. So pastors and kingdom leaders, uh, I just want to encourage you that following Jesus is a lot like skipping rocks. If you don't skip it, it's okay. You're still learning. So may you rest in that grace and may you experience that grace for yourself in the weeks to come. Amen.